Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today in our Why Evangelism Doesn't Work series for All Things Evangelism podcast. Um, this episode is a continuation of our last episode where I got together with my friend from the United States and philosopher J.D. St. Bernard, and we discussed that if we don't love each other in spite of our differences, then evangelism doesn't work because the apostles were together in one place in one spirit, and that's when the Holy Ghost came upon them, is, is that they began to truly and genuinely love each other, and they were one, as Jesus and the Father were one. Um, and so, yeah, that was our conversation. I think it was a, a blessed conversation and an insightful conversation, and we're going to continue that because we want to talk about issues of race in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We want to talk about issues of race in general. We want to talk about all the things that divide us and just have a general discussion because we think that if we do it will be healthy, it will be healing, and uh, it'll bring us together in a way that uh, we otherwise couldn't be. So thanks for Amen. joining me, JD, from the bedroom Oh yeah, no, of your home. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks for having me again. Thanks for bringing us into your intimate fellowship. Right, yeah, yeah. Not, intimate space. This isn't just for anybody, you know, so you must be my friend if you're That's in right. this space. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. You don't mind a whole bunch of strange Australians. You're right. You don't like this, mate. <laughs> <laughs> to see your your home and your bedroom so yeah that's good um hey so we got in such a good we had a good dialogue last week and we realized in that conversation that there was so much more we could consider and discuss and thresh out together um as bible students as followers of christ and as um you know thoughtful people um so yeah this is part two and uh so i want to just kind of get the ball rolling i guess okay um we, we were talking last week and before the podcast about um, the, the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and how they related to politics and how they related to race. And you were, you were just saying some things about how you admired their disposition and how they handled just the race question. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to kind of? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I could get that going. So one thing. I guess I guess it's fitting to like give a quick background uh about me and like how I got uh to that space. So when um I've I've been I was interested in questions surrounding race and black people in America from a pretty early age. So uh one summer I was um for instance I was visiting my grandmother and she lives in Manhattan and I would go spend the summers with her and I um I was up there and she was she took me to a bookstore uh, that was that pr- was a primarily like black author bookstore in the West Village, and um, I bought this book that at at the age of twelve, Matt, I had no business buying. Like it was out of my depth. Um, yeah. It was it was called uh, the Crisis of the Negro Intellectual and um, by Howard Cruz. And so I was I was really I, I tried. I would sit on the bus and I would try to read it. And you know I got to page twelve or thirteen I think before the summer was over. Um, and, but, but that marked like that, that this was a very deep, like concern in me. Um, it was some about it. And so as I got older, uh, and I was, you know, I, I was born in the Seventh-day Adventist culture. Um, I, I, I'm careful to say I wasn't born in Seventh-day Adventist. Cause I don't think you can be right. Like, I think you are brought to church as a child by people who made decisions before you were around, right? Yeah. So often when you're when you're born born into it. So um but as I grew, you know, my teenage years a little bit older, 
um, I remember like really struggling, like, cause I didn't know where the church, you didn't really hear it talked about in the church, like race and racism and those kind of, in, in our church. And so I remember struggling. And one day, and I do not remember how, I, I believe it was the spirit of God, because I don't think anybody recommended it to me. I was, um, you know, my parents, because my dad was an elder in the church. So like, I, we had all the red books on the shelf. We had all the, you know, we had all the desire of ages. We had the family, the, the edition that you buy from Cole Porter's, the really thick yeah. ones with the, oh, yeah, the illustrations. So anyway, so I remember taking, I was reading through volume one of the testimonies. And for what I perceived as a random reason, and I got to this unit or the section where she talks about the Civil War. Yeah. And I had never read it before. I never heard anyone reference it. And I began to read it and I could not believe what was in this book. Right. about like so you know she she will say things like the civil war was a plague that god was visiting on america for the sin of slavery yeah the, wow. she said that and i was like what like why didn't and why didn't anyone tell me about this so yeah. now I, I uh i ended up you know she talked about the national fast that um that america was having and she said if you want god to save the country then free the slaves just point but you don't have to fast you don't have to pray like you just do what you have to do and god will god sure. will work right sure um and and so it it sparked this interest in me where i started to just try to find like what they were because light bulbs started going off right the church was around in 1844 yes uh well it it formal it it formally comes into being as the seventh day Adventist church in 61 right or 60 in the Three? 60s, yeah, 1860s. Right, the early yeah. 60s. Yeah. Well, when, when you think about like that historical context, like 1844, slavery is still going on. And then in the 1860s, we're, we're on the cusp of the Emancipation Proclamation and all that, right? So like the, the Adventist church comes into, you know, its infancy in the throes of this. Yes. So then I started to wonder like, well, they, if they don't have anything to say about it, then we have a problem. We have a problem. And for right. me as a young black person if if they have but i found out that they had a ton to say about it uh, right so i'll just give a quick a few quick examples and then we could talk because i'm not trying to like ball hog the, no go no i'm glad that you are brother i just want to throw uh, this in here before you keep going yeah. this is a powerful thought could you imagine how difficult it would be for black americans or for just people of color anywhere in the world if they would research the founders of the Adventist church and see that they just happened to be people who in the midst of all of that crisis had nothing to say. Right. Who took no, no strong stances for right. the right side, irrespective of how popular yeah. or unpopular it was. Yeah. Dude, how inspiring is that? Hey. I, listen, so it, I, it saved me. I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna be 100% honest. Like it saved me, cause I was like on the cusp. I wasn't gonna leak, cause you know, I was still at the age I was in my late teens where like the, I was still gonna have to go to church, but like, it saved it, it it positioned me where like i can like trust this movement right all right so it for instance in jan andrews right so jan andrews many people know he's the first he's attributed as the first pioneer to make that connection between america and the lamb like beast of revelation 13 right in in our movement one of the so he and i won't develop his whole thought but like one of the things that he says when he talks about when he gets to the part of where the lamb like beast speaks like a dragon he immediately goes to to slavery as an evidence that it's speaking as it's speaking uh, as a dragon interesting right so like it has this declaration of independence that uh we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal 
uh, and it says, well, how can that be true? Like, how can you say that and hold, hold, you know, a whole Please. population of people? And, and one thing, because uh, I don't want to forget to make this point. So while I'm thinking about it, one thing that I find compelling about their view is they saw black people as their brethren. So James White, when he referred to the black people, the black slaves in the South, they were his brethren. Like, that's not me. Like, I, that's a word that they would use. But they would right. Use. Yeah. Right. So there was this inherent equality in them, despite their political position uh, as as you know politically they were seen as property but through the lens the, through the prophetic lens that the adventist pioneers were using they were their brethren yeah. and that was critical wow. to me this, yeah. so um and you know so, what's, so, uh, what's so exceptional about that is the fact that the times they were living in the in the general perception of many individuals now i know that there were and they stand out in in time like individuals who stood up and, and boldly proclaim the message of abolition, like for sure. And they're like yeah. heroes and we read about them and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. But the, the current and the, the trend of society was not to take that position. No. Whether, whether you agreed with slavery or not, very few people would, at least on a social relational level, attribute equality to people of African descent. It just, it just yeah. wasn't happening. So yeah. I find that to be really exceptional because it's one thing to stand up for a cause when yes. that cause happens to be a socially acceptable cause. Um, like there are socially unacceptable sins and there are socially acceptable sins. I mean, it's very easy for the Christ follower to stand up and, yeah. you know, denounce the socially unacceptable sins. We have that in our society today, like pedophilia, you know, you can, or, or uh, domestic violence. It's very easy for a Christian to stand up and say, I condemn domestic violence. Well, yeah. And you have about 50 million people right. clapping for you while you do that. Right. And so it's very hard to know, are you doing this because you're principally committed to this or convicted in your heart of hearts that you'll stand for this no matter what, or are you standing for this? Because, you know, that's going to make you look good yeah. in the society that you live in and now so you've got these people these peculiar believers who have a very unique take on scripture and prophecy and these people are willing to in the midst of a society where it's very common to downgrade black people yep. saying yeah this is our brothers these are fellow humans and giving them full equality under god with everyone else to me that's exceptional absolutely i agree a thousand percent and and um, what, what is interesting. So, yeah, so like they, they are making these moves and what I, uh, to just piggyback on the point you were just making, it's important to note that they were making these moves before the civil war. So James White writes this article, um, called the nation that, you know, you could look up, I think it was 1851 when he penned it, mm. where he's, he, it, and he, he's an, he's an incredible writer and he starts to lay, list out all the things that slavery was beating. So he says that like, you know, we all believe in the Bible until it runs into slavery and then the Bible loses. We all believe in religion until it runs into slavery and then religion loses. And he just gives this list and he talks about how, you know, to a man in the day, in that day, that how that that they were agreed that slavery was wrong. And what and what what I think is interesting that this wasn't a sentimentalism that drove them, right? They didn't feel bad on the inside. What I find interesting about them is that looking at the world through the prophetic lens is what allowed them to see. 
right? Mm-hmm. So it was, that's why I think it transcended time in the way you, to contrast what you were just talking about. Okay. It wasn't a cultural thing. It wasn't like, wow, this is, we feel bad about this on the inside. We're predicting <laughs> was, the trends. They're not like predicting it, the no, trend. Because I, we can see where things are going and yeah. we want to be on the right side of history. How right. much, I, dude, I, how much I hate that term, being on the right side of history. Right side I can't of even history. describe to you. <laughs> I can't even describe to you. Because because people are in essence saying you should take your positions based upon what's going to win, and how you will be read in the future. Yes, who cares how you're going to be read in the future? Like, you know, like Jesus makes that crazy statement to the people in his day. I don't want to don't don't let this sidetrack your your point. He when he makes that one of the most cool statements of Jesus, and there's so many things he says about the religious establishment that we only see on the surface, but we don't understand the implications of what he's saying. But when he says to them you build monuments to the prophets but you testify that you are the descendants of those who killed them because you want to kill me yeah or in other words it's very easy to exonerate a prophet when they're dead and gone because they're not a bother to you but when they were alive it never looked like they were on the right side of history like they always looked like they were on the wrong side of history because the stances that they took were not based upon the social trends and what was what morality was popularized at the time they viewed everything through the lens of scripture they stood completely and totally upon the platform of scripture and that was it and i think that's something that that we oftentimes fail to see as adventists is 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 we'll look back in time and say oh well you know the morality of that time was formed by their culture and their circumstances while at the same time that's happening to us and i think yeah yeah, so so so, no no so so as much as you hate the right side of history i hate the term product of their time that somebody was a product of their time as if that gives some sort of like leeway for them not making a right like like not taking the right positions because it it it, it, i think man i don't want to get too far off of too far field but like i think that that product of one's time buys into this it may be unwittingly it buys into this idea that we are on a natural progression upward Right. And so you can't hold somebody in the past accountable because like they weren't in our time. If they knew what we knew now, then like they would have said differently. I think that buys into that bad idea that we're naturally progressing like upward. And and it's just not true. And then, I mean, to be like, I, I don't buy it because of like individuals like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like, you know, the, like people who in their time had to make a decision for the truth that was hard and that was costly. Like there would, they wouldn't exist if people were just merely products of their time, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, I, to, to bring it back, like I think the pioneers were examples of this. They were not products of their time. Like they weren't just people who like read the newspaper and like, oh, I guess this is the way we're going. Cause we, you know, we gotta make sure people know to like us. So we're gonna say what, that's not what was happening. Right. So the article that I referred to that James White wrote, James White says that they were so out, they were so, I, I, it's not obnoxious. I don't wanna use that word, but they were so loud about like beating the drum of anti-slavery mm-hmm. and anti-racism uh, in their time that the Adventist Review and Sabbath Herald was banned in slaveholding states, according to James oh, White. Seriously? Yep, that's what he says. Exactly. Now, like he's in that article, he says, we, are, we, we have been so like uh, clear on this point that they, mm-hmm. they won't take it down there. They're not interested. No, and wow. so that's not Heavy. an individual who's a product Heavy. of his time. Heavy. 
And so that's hectic. That's, that's so cool. Do you know, I, I don't want to get off this topic because it's, mm-hmm. but it, there's a, another issue that gives insight to us on the character of the pioneers and that is their views on abortion. Now, a lot of people don't know that the, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church pioneers had a position on abortion. Okay. I listened to a guy named Pro-Life Andrew on YouTube. I just stumbled across him. He's an Adventist guy and I don't know anything about him or his ministry. I, I don't endorse it or not, but he, he has a few presentations that I've watched where he cites pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist movement and Adventist periodicals. And he just gives a little bit of the historical context of the debate and how medical physicians at the time of the pioneers of the Adventist church were almost unanimously against abortion. It was something that they opposed and something that they felt was a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. Like they were pledged to save life, not to take it. And so to them, it was just, it was a non-starter. It just wasn't even something to consider. Churches were divided. There was all kinds of different views and, and perspectives and opinions in the Adventist church. Uh, pioneers, and he shows you know statements of Ellen White's about the life of the child in the womb, and the development of the child in the womb, and John the Baptist in the womb, and the, the care of the mother while her mm-hmm. child's the care of the child while it's in the womb by the mom. Mm-hmm. And she talks about that life, that person, that holy thing, you know, all these kinds of things. So you can you can see that it is inferred in her writings that she valued the unborn as yeah as lives that God had brought into existence and that had yeah. the right to live. And the pioneers, the other, you know, pioneers were pretty explicitly against it. I only make this a point because there were, at the time, as far as I can gather, not like, you had to be original to take that position. Okay. There wasn't like, like, social movements for or against it. It was just, what did you really believe? Like, what do you think? What is your conviction? And, And is that something that you'll stand for? because that's just what you really believe. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the, the character of the pioneers was an authentic character, like a genuinely convicted character where you had people who were not like gauging social trends and kind of fitting in and like, they were not weather vanes blowing with the right. wind. You know, they were truly John the Baptist who thought yeah. okay, this is true. We're, this is God's message. This is God's position. And this is what we stand for. Like though the heavens fall. Yeah, I, I personally love it when I'm in an environment and there's that spirit in it. Yeah, where there's that just unreserved commitment to what the texts say, what the Word of God communicates. So I just love that. I I feel like there is a dearth of that in the Adventist Church in the modern time, and there's a lot of co-opting. I mean, anyways, just I just no 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 that's good no. But I do, when we like later, I just want to stick a pin in that. Like we'll probably like head that direction later about the difference. Uh, I just want, you know, for a, a listener who like may not, you know, they may, because this is where I get grief, right? Personally. Wait, which direction I want to go? Hey, before you so, do it, check this out. I got, I got to say something. I can't believe I yeah, didn't yeah. do this. Bro, I, I realized I wanted to bring up that abortion thing is because the issue of abortion, like in our day with the kind of partisan politics that rule the United States of America, of America and other countries where you just have like the left-right dichotomy, you know, you've got yeah, Republicans. Yeah. The Democrats in this country, Australia, you've got the Labour Party, which is like the equivalent of the Democrats, and then you have the Liberal Party, which is the equivalent of the Republicans. You know, for this context, they're different. They're not like Republicans, but they're right, their own right. kind of conservative. You just have that all over the world. It's in France, it's in England. It's just the, the partisan nature of politics in the modern age. And maybe it's always been that way. I don't know. Issues of race seem to be in America the domain of the left. 
Like they're the, they're the ones associated with speaking about race, speaking about racial equality. It's the right that are generally interested in the idea of abortion and the right of life for children. Oh, okay. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so you've got in our time, two separate issues that are identified with two separate political parties yeah. or divisions of the political you know, divide. Well, you've got Adventists in their pioneer phase that are fully taking a stand on both of those issues. Oh, right. I see. Uh -huh. Which uh -huh. I think indicates that, okay, these are people who believe what they're saying. Like they yeah. think, if they really think this is wrong, they don't care what political group it's associated with. They think this is wrong. And so it's like what Ellen White says in her writings when she talks about the Adventist's relationship to, to politics. She says you should vote on issues, not on politicians, not for parties. Right. So as a people, you're standing up for what's right, but you're not standing, you're not allowing yourself to be absorbed into a political movement or just taking political sides. Yeah. I think it's yeah, powerful. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with that. And so, okay, that'll, that takes that, that, okay, I think you just answered the direction. Okay, so I was preaching <laughs> in 2015, uh, 16, my fault. So I moved, I moved down here to Memphis in 2017. I was in Wisconsin. Uh, I went up there, I moved up there in 2008 to Bible work. I Bible worked for three years and then um, I stopped Bible working in an official capacity so I could go to school and, and, and finish my undergrad. And so, but I was an elder in the church and I, you know, I was preaching pretty frequently uh, and there was something, and, and I'm going to take, I won't, I didn't do it this that day, um, but I, I felt there was a certain thing. And as an elder in the church, I felt like I needed to address. And so what I did is uh, it, this was, you know, we were getting toward when it was about to be time to um, vote. And I preached a sermon where I laid out very, just as clear as I could, the, the pioneers relationship to America, right? And I just gave them these, the, the quotes about the, the lamb-like beast. And just a quick aside, and man, I, I hope I don't get you into any trouble with what I'm about to say. That's right. You can, you can divorce yourself from what, like, no, you don't, don't the, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> one, I think one thing that has happened is that in a lot of, we're making a mistake in, in our evangelistic series, at least in the ones, so I'll leave it anecdotal so that nobody feels offended who hears this. When we get to, when we get to Revelation 13 and when we talk about America, we are, we, we try, we spend 15 to 20 minutes trying to assure the audience that so we are not anarchists and that we love America, we love this country, and we just have to do this. And then what we do is we, we uh, so you know, and, and it's ironic because a few days before in any given evangelistic series, uh, when we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, we will point to the historicist, futurist, preterist distinction, right? And we'll say, we're historicists, we're not futurists. This is what futurists, they throw all the prophetic symbols into the future. Preterist throws all the uh, prophetic uh, fulfillment into the past. But we're historicists, it's been, been fulfilled all along, right? Mm -hmm. And then we, but when we get to America, many, from where I've sat, many ministers are right. futurists. They're right. futurists. It's only they something America will do in the future. Yes, they throw all into the future. One day, this mark of the beast thing, and they blame the, they blame various entities for the reason why um, uh, America will fall off the cliff, and then uh, wow. she'll pass the Sunday law, and then you'll have a decision to make about the Sabbath. We make it very. What what is interesting when you read the literature, right? The the pioneers about the fulfillment started in their day. The the America was already speaking like a dragon, in their day. It wasn't something that was coming. And what's interesting is that in their day, 
it was race part of the dragonness of the voice was the racialized yes. position that oh, America had taken. Dude. Okay. Yes, that's powerful. Go on. No, so so what I did is I, I just laid down the, the the like what they said about America. This is James White Smith, Uriah Smith, Loughborough. Um, Loughborough has this incredible quote in the preface of his tract on Revelation 13. He says, are you a, a politician? And he says, what you're going to read about this country, he says, he, and he points to the treatment of the black people. He says, we see in the treatment of black people in America what America is capable of. And he says, it is coming your direction. Hmm. One day, you like it, you, you may not feel it now. Right. So the what you see so I, I, laid, I laid it all down. Let me get to the punchline, right? I said all that, and then I was just like, look, oh. my appeal, and, and this, I don't usually practice my sermons. I usually just try to, you know, I have notes, and then I just try to let, like, leave room for God. But this one, I really was careful because I, I knew what I was doing. So oh, I, I said, the, in the appeal, I said to them, I said, uh, you know, if, when it, if you are more American than you are Adventist, then you are gonna find yourself in difficult water soon because if you read that chapter, the lamb-like beast does not end on the right side of the question. Right. There's no way to read it. There's no conversion of the lamb-like beast. The lamb-like beast doesn't get baptized. You understand what I'm saying? There is no redemption story for the lamb-like beast. Yeah. So if you are more American than you are Adventist, you, are, you will find yourself on the wrong side of the question. And you are already building the momentum to be on that wrong side. Yeah. And I, but I said, I said, listen, if you have a problem with this, we have potluck every week. You come talk to me. <laughs> I'm around. We can sit at the table. We can break bread. We can talk about it. Yes. Not one person talked to me, Matt. Shook my hands. Oh, thank you for that. We love you. We appreciate you bringing that information. Monday, I, I bumped into the pastor in the church. I was in there working in the office. And the, the, the pastor comes in. And he, and he said, what did you preach about on Sabbath? And so I paused and I was just like, what do you mean? So he asked me, so I laid out the sermon. He said, huh, that doesn't sound like terrible. So apparently some of the brethren, and I don't know who they are to this day, and I don't want to know. I said, Jesus, I don't ever want this revealed to me. But they called him and they were just like, you know, we were concerned that Jasper is becoming too political. That sermon was too political. Now, I, I, I tell that story to illustrate something is happening to us where the very appeal is you don't want to be too political because you'll be on the wrong side. It's seen as a political question because I think the, the, the sermon indicted America and that made it political. Yeah, man, this is a really interesting thought. When the Bible uses terms to describe powers like antichrist or the beast or the dragon and okay. So the dragon is identified as Satan, obviously dragon, is synonymous right. with Satan. That's a bad thing. But but the America American nation being described in Revelation 13 as a lamb-like beast, immediately when you see an unflattering term, it, in, in our minds, we just think bad. Yeah. Bad. So the, the term Babylon in reference to the confused Christian yeah. churches at the end of time, the, which I understand theologically is just a way to communicate that the beliefs of these organizations are not founded in God's word and therefore primarily they're like idols. You know, they're, they're basic on, on an essential level, they're idols. So yeah. in Babylon, that was a, a central, it was a place 
of opposition, kind of like the focal point of opposition to God. It, one of the central features of ancient Babylon was its idol worship. And it was, it was a proliferator of idolatry around the world. It's thinking, it's views of God. And so um, Babylon is a fitting term to, uh, to, to use to identify Christian faith that's pro- proliferating itself around the world, but that's based on false ideas about God. So, it's, mm-hmm. so Babylon promoted idolatry. The Christianity at the end of time will promote idolatry, not in that they're praying to rocks and stones and pieces of metal, but rather on an essential level, they're doing the same thing because they're, they're communicating false concepts of yeah. God that just developed in men's minds, not from yeah. revelation. Yeah. So Babylon is not a pejorative. It's not like, hey, let me say something mean about people. It's an right. accurate description yeah. of the faith yeah, yeah. of millions of Christ followers. And this is not an indictment of their faith in Christ, their sincerity as people, and the good virtues in their lives and, and the good values that they might stand for. It's just, it's God in symbolic terms communicating right. facts. Right. It's not God being insulting and saying, these right. are the bad, horrible people, and these were right. the really good people. No, the Bible's very clear. Everyone is. There's none righteous. There's no not, not one. No. You know, we're all no. filled with wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Uh, and God is never flattering to the human condition. So here's where I'm going with this is that I think it's hard for someone who sees all the good that America stands for and has stood for and has accomplished and assumes that then it could only be revelation 13 can only be describing a, a future condition. Right. So human mind has a hard time blending multiple facts together yeah. into one kind of succinct picture. So yeah, it's like, yeah. well, America's the lamb like beast. Yeah. But you track the course of just human civilization and you see, okay, well, when in the history of the world have, hundreds of millions of people had access to the things that we have access to and had the liberties that we have that we can practice in the Western world, in Europe, in America and whatever mm-hmm. in mass, you've, you, you have a hard time finding any civilization that provides the freedoms and the prosperity that, that the Western nations have to their own yeah. people. So you say, well, this isn't all bad. How can you call it the lamb like, like beast? And you only say that when you don't understand that the Bible doesn't use unflattering language because it's trying to say that everything about that country is bad. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I do, I do, I do. The whole idea of being lamb like means you're lamb like there's elements and aspects of the power that are like the lamb. It's, it's, it, it, it looks, it never even says it's lamb like, but it has horns like a lamb. There are features of the beast that are like Christ that are Christian in nature. And that's a good thing. That's a fine thing, but it speaks like a dragon or in other words, as it expresses itself in different ways, you'll see satanic qualities. And strangely enough, when I'm just thinking, this is just another point to kind of add to the little conglomerate of points I've just made. When a nation functions as all of the nations have functioned, and that is to serve its own ends, it is speaking like the dragon. Okay. okay, so you can say America is a Christian nation if what you mean is there are values and beliefs that are integrated in the United States Constitution that come from the Bible. Okay, sure, you can say America is a Christian nation, but if, but if what you mean when you say America is a Christian nation is that in all actuality, 
right. the country is fully surrendered to and submitted to the leadership of Jesus Christ, the God of heaven. No, it's not a Christian nation. No, you and you can't. And and I think that thing, the thing to, I, I it's think a there's it's a nation. It's another nation. It's that's nation. All, right. I was about to say that. So that I think the, mis, the the mistake that's often made is in is in the mythology that America takes on. Right. So like, what what I think if if you understand America to be an experiment, it was an experiment. Like there were people trying to hash a, a new way of governing, like they were running from one form of governance and they were trying to, but any, an experiment is messy. The unwillingness to acknowledge the messiness of the experiment in the, for the sake of like a nationalistic pride is, is, is a mistake. Like it's just a mistake. They're on paper and, and it's funny, like when you fast forward to like, oh, so King's last speech, was it, I think it was his last speech. Um, uh, I've been to the mountaintop. So he gets, he gets murdered in America the day after. He's shot in the head for, for doing the work that he's doing. The night before, he says, all we're saying to America is be true to what is written on the paper. I think that right there is what, it, it is what has been declared, right? On paper, there have been uh, platitudes and expressions that any meaningful person would be like, well, that, there's something to that. The Declaration of Independence is a beautiful document right but while that very thing was being penned right many of the men in the room were slave owners at the time so there's this grappling with experience and theory that that has been from the inception of the country what are we going to be has always been the question and 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 to deny that for the sake of some sense of security because i really think that's all it is like a lot of, of of americans they just want to be secure so like you can't really bash the the nation because then i have no like rootedness anymore like if america's bad what are you saying am i bad like then it, it, it spirals out of control but like to admit that it's been an experiment from the get-go and that it has had its problems from the beginning as i think the admission that our our forefathers and i mean the seventh day adventist pioneers they were they were able to strike that balance they didn't bash the declaration of independence they just said why can how can this be true if if this other if you're doing this other thing on the ground right um ellen white has very startling things to say about the fugitive slave law in 1850 she says if you give a slave back it is a sin it's a sin to give a slave back she was like that doesn't that wasn't an all-encompassing statement that was she was just saying like there are this is there's an expression here that was a law on the books there's an expression and if you abide by the expression you're on the wrong side of the question yeah. as a christian you're on the wrong yeah. side of the question and i think we we struggle with that nuance now and you have to either be american like to the core flag waving hot dog eating or you're an anarchist and i think that i think i don't think that it's that um yeah. Polar. I don't think it's that polar. It's not that simple. It is an oversimple, oversimplification of the, of the yeah. reality. Yeah. Like he, Daniel was very supportive of Babylon, but I think more than anyone, he would understand its flaws and faults. Right. And the way that he served his nation was not by capitulating to all of what his nation stood for and, and did. He, yep. he would pray when the nation said he shouldn't. Yet at the same time, his loyalty to the nation was never in question. Right. Because he was a complete servant of the nation and he wanted its upbuilding he wanted it to be as as, as blessed as it could possibly be, be but he understood the avenue to blessing the avenue to blessing yes. was pleasing god yeah and and giving the nation what it needed not always what it wanted 
And I think that was the stance of the early Adventist pioneers. They said what was true and what was needed to be said, uh, whether or not people wanted to hear it. They just said yeah. it because it was true and it was right. And to me, this just shows a genuine commitment to the, to the king of the universe, like true commitment to God, true consecration to God. And I think we were talking before the podcast that this is one of the reasons why early Adventists were not co-opted into political movements. Like, what, can I say before you make that point? Yeah. Can I say one yeah, thing sure. about Daniel really quick? Yep. So, because I'm glad I'm glad you went there. I was gonna bring him up because I was thinking all day today. Like, and and he and he came to my mind. So, Dan, like you said, Daniel, uh, we we know that he's not like anti-Babylon in any kind of like. Um, obnoxious way because he yeah. takes that position from nebuchadnezzar right he he's elevated he's he mm. but when it came time so in daniel chapter two when he think about what daniel is saying to nebuchadnezzar in daniel chapter two when mm. he says you are the head of gold you are but there is a chest and arms of silver that's coming behind you he's telling nebuchadnezzar babylon is not going to last forever it's yeah. not going to last forever and then that silver is going to be replaced by bronze and on the on down right where and it's, and it's sure a judgment from god in essence really that yeah but he's not so he can say with conviction because he's he's speaking what god is saying like this that the at no none of these nations are are uh um the, none of them are eternal right there's one there is one kingdom that's eternal and it's cut out without man's hands and it's going to destroy this image that's all the prophetic message is saying. And so if you are if, if in any nation, if you're so nationalistic that you have somehow been deceived into thinking that your country is, is eternal and it's going through, that's not true. It's just not true prophetically. And it's okay, it's okay to love certain cultural accoutrements of your country and know that to be true at the same time, right? You're not violating anything by making that admission when yeah. you say that. That's and fantastic. You, I really appreciate that because there's, it's almost like they call it being the loyal opposition. Like everyone should be willing to be the loyal opposition. Yeah. In the sense that you can oppose something that you believe is fundamentally wrong and sinful, yet at the same time, you can, you can be loyal. Right. And that's a really hard position for, for many of us to take. It's either either or. We just live in this either or dichotomy. It's just the yeah. prison of the human mind. It's either of God or it's either not. And I guess that stems from scripture, right? You're, you're either with me or you're against me, Jesus says, but that's a spiritual statement that's addressed to individuals. Um, but in regards to nations, things get very complicated. Like, but anyways, I, I wanted to say just as a, maybe even as a balancing measure, and this isn't, I'm not saying this for other people, but this is just really my thought. Um, there are things that Ellen White says about the United States that are very flattering in regards to like the special favor that God has bestowed on the nation. Right. Um, because of the legal provisions that it's given, that, that, sorry, the legal provisions that are, that are afforded yeah. to the citizenry. Um, she talks about uh, when we begin to infringe upon the freedom of conscience, that's when God will remove his protection of us, his special protection. So when I was in the U.S. Navy, I used to always think to myself, man, there are, there are millions of terrorists out there who'd like to blow up the U.S., you know, for whatever reason, for lots of different reasons. And it was very easy to access the ordinance chambers on the United States Kitty Hawk. So I worked in the weapons department on the USS Kitty Hawk. And I knew the character of some of my shipmates. It was very, you know, they, they weren't all the most virtuous and noble people, right? Okay. They were people that would, 
do anything for money and you know not everybody there's a, there's a class of sailors that were noble and decent but there are a lot of guys on there that were low lives and i just used to think to myself a lot of these guys hate the government they hate their lives they're they'd be easily bought off a terrorist could give one of these guys 250,000 bucks and a ticket to some country to live on some island for the next 20 years and one of these guys would take some explosives and put it on the ship and let it blow up like it was so it's so easy like it'd be so easy to sink a u.s war vessel like in san diego you just kind of conspire with about 15 or 20 people it'd be very maybe not nowadays but when i was in the navy it's, yeah it was relatively lax at those times and i used to ponder in my mind i was never somebody who had terroristic you know leanings or anything i'm not trying to say like i i felt like doing this but it just used to puzzle me because as you're listening to political debates and you're seeing terrorism overseas and certain people's feelings about the american experience and i and they they hated the country so much i thought man it'd be so easy to blow this ship up how come it doesn't happen and then when i gave my life to christ and i, I kind of stumbled upon some of ellen white's sentiments about the united states and god's special protection and his special favor on the nation and his approval of the kind of governmental structure. She doesn't say that explicitly, but it's fully inferred in her writing. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That the whole, I, the whole concept of a nation by the people, for the people, um, kind of a republicanism form of government, she's very favorable to that. She was a diehard like republicanist, not okay. Republican Party, but just right. Yeah, right, support right, of the right. Republican form of government. She seemed to, to really be favorable towards it. Um, and, and, and so, she speaks about God removing his protection and removing his favor. So for the person out there who's thinking to themselves, look, America has been a net good in the world. I mean, if it wasn't for the United States, we'd, we'd all be speaking German. And, okay. you know, the Nazis would have taken over. Or the Imperial Japanese, do we suppose that they were going to be nicer to indigenous peoples? Um, you know, would they have said sorry in 150 years? I, I don't think so. Um, because what system of ethics was going to govern the Nazis to the point where they would say, oh, man, what we did to those Jews, man, that was right, really, right, right, right. you better make, you know, there wouldn't even be a conversation. So in the context of those governmental systems, you're not even having a discussion that we're having right now. You're not even, okay. this, that's, not, that's not even part of the picture. So I think that there is a reasonable, you know, position where people would say, hey, look, you don't want to be too harsh on the country because if you judge it by the value systems of every other country that's existed, it's pretty high on the list, right? Like if you're thinking of it from a secular standpoint, from okay, a right. yeah, secular yeah, yeah. standpoint like yeah, yeah. when would the, the, you know, like if imagine the, the irony of uh, like say an uh, Indian Hindu who's in the United States of America who talks about racial inequality, what system did that person come from? <laughs> the caste yeah. system, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not in America unless you were a Brahmin. What are you talking about? Right, you know, right. like, so when you consider whether it be indigenous cultures in the Americas and their value systems, if you consider uh, Nazi morality, Babylonian morality, the basic disposition of the Roman Empire towards slaves and the underprivileged, you don't even get to a point of having a... a, a a big conversation in public until you get to Judeo-Christian Western powers. Like you, that, that whole reality doesn't even become a possibility. So I think on one level, like in my brain, like in Matt Parra's head, on the one side, on the, on the side of, hey, let's just, let's judge a nation by the standard of nations. But I can fully, I can fully stand up with people who are like, yeah, USA, USA. And I can go, yeah, I see that. I get that. Mm -hmm. But then as a, as a Christ following believer, 
who bases his views on what scripture has to say. I would never go so far, and I think this is where you cross the line of blasphemy, where you go so far to kind of take this manifest destiny perspective, and then you begin to, to kind of like sanctify the state, yeah. and you make it like unimpeachable, yeah. where you can't say, hey, wait a second, this is, yeah, as far as the course of nations is concerned, we're doing pretty good. But that's like comparing like a person who murders 10 people to a person who murdered like 10,000. Like, yeah, you might be doing pretty good, but you're still kind of a murderer. Yeah, that's right. And, and, yeah. and I would even say this is, is, is relevant to the discussion of like foreign military incursions of the United States that are happening right now. Yeah. So with, with all due respect to the like, okay, George Bush is known as a militaristic president. Mm-hmm. Right. This is his, his reputation. He stood in front mm-hmm. of the camera. I remember in like, whenever the year was, I was in the Ukraine and he stood up in front of a TV camera and said, Saddam has to surrender his government or something or in like two days or we're going to attack. And I was like, what in the world? This guy's nuts. Like, I can't yeah. believe he just did that. And then we went and bombed and killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. For supposed weapons of mass destruction that just didn't exist. Right. And we knew it. And like his administration knew it. Okay. Yes. Well, I found out like a few years after I voted for Barack Obama in 2008. I loved his speeches. I loved the, the stances he was taking. Then when he got into office, he didn't really stand by a lot of the, the promises that he made at the onset uh, as far as anyways, whatever. I'm not even going to get into the issues, but <laughs> as far as it concerned drone strikes, like unmanned drone strikes, he commanded more of them than George Bush. Yeah. Like, but nobody knows that. Right. So I, I feel like if you live in the United States of America, you should say, amen, thank you, God, that I have these freedoms that I am afforded and we can have these discussions because there's some degree of freedom and liberty. But I'm also paying tax dollars into a system that's bombing people all the time that I don't know and I don't understand why. Yeah. If that's not satanic, if that's not like, you know, speaking like a dragon, I just don't know really what is. Like making pretext for war, for some financial reason that nobody you know yeah i'm sounding a little i'm going a little all over the place but i hope i'm making sense no no for sure and i was just gonna bring it back to to race right so like because because i i've i've been i've had the privilege of having similar conversations like this and you know the retort is um you know if you don't like it then go somewhere And, and and what i would tell what i tell people is like listen prophetically there's nowhere to go Show me a, a, a square inch of this earth that's not going to have to grapple with any of this stuff before Jesus comes. So, like, we should stop. Like, we should show more, show, show more maturity and just, like, you know, like, really ask Scripture what it's saying. So, anyway, what, what I, I'm not saying you were saying any of that. It just no, gave, like, I just had a flash of, like, well, if you don't like it, well, just go. All right. Well, it, according to Scripture, it's going to be far-reaching and everywhere. So, there's nowhere else to run. Um, but the, I would say when it go to, to piggyback on the point you were making as, as when it comes to race, right? I think we can ask meaningful questions about America's track record with race, right? This, and this is, again, like, this doesn't diminish that it did good in the world. I mean, it's, it's not a question of that. Huh. But, um, and, and I think you can trace it. You can, uh, fortunately, you can trace it along Avenue's lines until the death of Ellen White, for sure. And I, and, and I mean, because that's where I've, concentrated a lot of my um attention so when when slavery was over uh uh in 1891 
she gets up during a general conference and she preaches one of the most important sermons I believe she gave, uh, Our Duty to the Colored People. And it's the first chapter in the book, The Southern Work, if, if anybody listening wants to read it. Uh, and she, she tells the, she, she suggests that like, this is a tough situation, like this is a, a tough topic to talk about, but she says, I can't be a coward. Like I have to speak up, I have to say something. And she goes to talk about how, you know, people the, at the time, the church was talking about the second coming of Jesus and, you know, Jesus is going to come and all this other stuff. But there was like a whole group in the South that was like fully neglected. Like you will not take the gospel to them down there, but you think Jesus is going to come. But like, who is he coming for? Like, what does that, what does that even mean? And what's interesting in that, in that speech, I mean, in that speech or sermon, however you want to classify it, she, there was, uh, she says that there was this congregation in St. Louis that was struggling because the year before, no, 1891. So three years before we were, tr we were debating as a church, what we were going to do as black people started to receive the message. Like, are we going to receive them in the full fellowship or brotherhood or what are we going to do? Um, for the history buffs, like A.T. Uh, Jones and E.J. Wagner uh, came down. They said like, this shouldn't even be a question. If they love Jesus, then our brethren. And that's that. Right. Yes. Um, and they wanted to to pull. They they they. But there was debate. Should there be a policy? And that's when she told them to just relax. Don't like. There's no need for policy. Leave God room to work. All that other stuff. So then you fast forward a little bit, and in St. Louis there was a church that was struggling, and she was down there, uh, visiting. She's recounting this in that sermon, and she says that you know she heard about the issue, and then I think that the that night God gave her a vision, where she says she saw in letters of fire written on the wall, "All ye are brethren." Um, and that, and then she goes into how black, black, uh, black people and white people serve the same Jesus. They're going to the same heaven, like, and, and she works out their equality in that sermon, right? So like, even after slavery, you see, and this in 1891, what many people may not know is culturally in America, we're just about to enter into the lynching era. We're about, we're, we're easing that direction. So racial tensions are high in America. And the prophet has that to say about America in 1891. And if you fast forward, I mean, this is this is quick and dirty, but like if you fast forward to uh, like 19, I mean, she continues, she goes to Australia in 1895-ish, but she continues to write home about this issue. She continues to write letters because our church is really struggling. And, um, and then in 1907, this is not published, but it's in an interview and I have it in case you would, I mean, I could send it to you if you ever want to read it. She's yeah. interviewed and she says that she sees coming a slavery that will be, a, a, she sees slavery being revitalized and that it would be more, but it would be more favorable or more palatable, more palatable to the white brethren, mm. right? To white people. So she says that slavery wasn't gone uh, she calls it, she says that it came from the mind of Satan because only he loves to lord over others, right? But she mm -hmm. says that it's going to come back again. And so the question, the, 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 we, we, until we re, until we find again the, the courage to really tackle this, we're kind of in the dark. And I know we talked about this before you hit record. Like, I think we're in, we're in a current moment where we're looking out, like, to what does the world have to say? Like, okay, this racial, like, you have this group of people over here that have something to say about race, and you have, and we're chasing behind, and I think we're chasing behind because we don't know the legacy that was given to us as a people on how to grapple with these very issues. God, through 
the prophetic word gave us insight on how to deal with this but because we over time we've come we've become more we've sought security more than we've sought the truth like we've sought to be at home with the world so that we're, yes. we're not seen as cultish and weird. Like we, we wanna be more at home. Like we have abandoned a lot of what has been given to us. And yeah. now, uh, you know, so th I'll, I'll, I'll cap this point yeah. here. Yeah. I don't think this stuff going on with George Floyd and all that, that should not surprise the people of God. I think we should have had something to say well before George Floyd. I think we should have been, we should have been able to, to, to stake our position as it relates to the racial climate in America, but because we don't know ourselves and because we want to be at home, and I know I'm speaking in generalities and, yeah. and over, maybe overgeneralizing, we don't know what was told to us. And so we're waiting for someone else to say something and then we can come down one way or another based yeah. on whatever political leanings we have. And yeah. I think that's the mistake that we're making. Amen. That's powerful, man. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that we need to get to the, to the word of God and to the prophet to, to find our position. And, you know, it seems like on other issues as well, we, we find ourselves late to the party because God has to lead other people because we're just not following in regards right, right. to health. And, you know, in the United States of America, when I was maybe about 20 years ago, when I first started giving my life to the Lord, these these grocery stores called whole foods started popping up here and there and at, at the first they had like these meditation rooms and all this health food and they'd have these like health food people explaining diet in these seminars that they would have and meditation classes and it was like this one-stop shop where people can come in buy healthy food get educated in health and wellness and then like have these spiritual programs and i thought when they started popping up i was like wait a second man didn't Ellen White tell us to do this like 150 yeah. years ago or something? Yeah. Like, didn't, yeah. couldn't we have been doing this for a hundred years? And as an organization, like own supermarkets in every major city in the United States of America and boost our tithe by like a couple hundred million dollars, <laughs> right. you know, like, but because we ignore the messages that God gives us, yeah. we're always late to the party. And so now when vegetarianism is very fashionable, yeah, like, yeah, we're vegetarians, you, you know, and it, we're just following the crowd to, on yeah, so many man. levels. And I, I, that's something that I think we really need to address and, and speak about. And we don't speak about that hardly at all. But on the issue of race, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, this, this slavery thing that you mentioned that Ellen White was talking about, uh, I think that's, that's quite interesting to me because isn't there many ways to enslave people? Yeah. Right? Like the, this, the story of Native America, to me, to some degree, shows that slavery doesn't have to be overt for, for people to be enslaved. And the very efforts that have been put forward to help Native America don't seem to have helped at all, but have seemed to only imprison it further. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's crazy because I was watching this, uh, this news thing about uh, several reservations, Native American reservations in the Northeastern states of America that are not, that do not get any government subsidy. And I guess like, you know, 100, however, 100 years ago, or whenever they got these reservations carved out, the government came to the different tribes and said, okay, here, so here's your land. I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but yeah. here's your land and here's what we'll give you. And some of the tribes, very, very small minority of the tribes said, well, we'll take the land, but we don't want anything from you. We don't want government subsidy. We don't want help. We don't want whatever. And the government was like, uh, okay, sure. Today, all of the tribes that took nothing from the federal government 
houses, businesses, like in the reservation, you go in there and the houses are nice, the streets yeah. are clean, the people have running these businesses, they do have a, an advantage because they don't, they're not taxed the same as normal businesses, so they have this tax advantage. Mm-hmm. So they're making products and manufacturing stuff and selling it on the market and you know, corporatizing their, themselves. And I say this in the best possible way, they're like capitalizing uh, on the different businesses that they've made and, and they're doing amazing. And this guy, this chief was talking about how the government comes to him like every five years. And, and it's always people talking about how, Hey, you guys are disadvantaged. You're disadvantaged. You need to let us help you. Yeah. You need to let us help you. You see, because all these other tribes are getting this money and you're not, and you deserve it. And, uh, it's almost gotten to the point of litigation where the U S government is, is like going to sue these chiefs for depriving their people of the assistance of the government. Um, these chiefs are like hey we're doing fine like yeah like we're, we're we're just as capable as every other american look look what we built look what we're doing um we're well integrated into society we're making tons of money our kids are happy with how they're growing and developing and and so it seems like the devil it's it's like what happened to the christian church right like if you look at the first and second and third century of the christian church you've got horrific and terrible persecution like the most cruel and inhumane treatment that you could ever imagine being divvied out on a, on a people. And then it doesn't work. And then the state cozies up to the faith and then ends up inculcating the faith into itself. And, you know, the persecution continues in a different form against the true believers. And so if you can't, you know, if the devil can't win through outright oppression, well, then there's the soft oppression of buying you out where you sell your soul. And I'm not saying that this has necessarily happened to black America, but I do think that that happens. And so I'm and interested. I think, no, we're gonna. So I, I would say I would say from the, the from if you if you track from slavery, right? So you have you have this brief window of Reconstruction, where I and this is per, so this is a personal conviction. I believe America was given an opportunity to really be America, like in that in that moment. Yeah. But we collectively, through different means, shut that window, right? And so you you get into Jim Crow. A.T. Jones has this really interesting article in uh, right at the turn of the century in, in um, 1901, where he's writing about the convict leasing system. And uh, so, you know, so there were there were privatized prisons who would basically trump up a charge vagrancy or some ridiculousness and they would arrest uh, a black person, they throw them in jail and then they could lease them out to corporations to like do work. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so, um, A.T. Jones, there was a story of, of a black man was kidnapped, taken away from his family, and he tried to escape, and he was shot in the head. And so Jones was reading that in the newspaper, and he writes this article about it, and he says that, like, this is basically the dragon, like, this is the dragon voice again, like, we, we hear it uh, going again. So anyway, you can trade, you can go from slavery, it goes from slavery to convict leasing to the prison industrial complex, right? I think Ellen White saw that thread. Now I know there's debate as to the proportion statistics, and I'm not really here uh, to 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 litigate that. But I do think that you can see a disproportionate mistreatment across, like a through, and and that doesn't mean that. Uh, no, I I'll, I'll just leave it. I don't I don't even have to qualify. I think you I think there's a thread, a historical thread that has been that can be drawn, and I think that's what Ellen White saw. And I, I forgot to mention this other thing. In 1911, there's, there's, there have been people who have written on this because they're trying to understand why she said this. But in 1911, she talked about seeing a coming race war. Oh, really? Right? She's, yeah, like she says, and, and the, the race war is a quote that, like, that's the phrase she used. 
And so you have a lot of people like trying to grapple with like, what does she mean? But I was doing some reading this week when you look at like, so she dies, she says this and then she dies in 1915. In 1919 uh, was the red summer of, uh, in America where there were several, and I should have looked up the number before I got on this with you, but there were several race massacres in America. There was in Chicago, uh, around the country, there were different areas. You know, there were soldiers who were just coming home from the war, and they were just there. There was just like there was. As a matter of fact, if somebody, you know, if people do the research, they'll see that the climate then was very similar to the climate now in 1919. We were just coming out of the Spanish flu pandemic, right? Uh, the, the, there was a little bit of economic un, unease uh, that was going on. Uh, you know, we're a few years from the Great Depression and all that, but there was some of that that was going on. And then you had this racial tension that was going on in the air. And that was in 1919. In two years, so in 1921, the Tulsa, Oklahoma bomb, uh, bombing and Black Wall Street happened. So the, the point I'm saying is that, like, prophetically, through the messenger of the Lord, we were given clues that, like, race was going to be a struggle that this country was going to deal with it was going to have to grapple with yeah. it has been grappling with it since its inception and it will continue it will continue to grapple with it now we should probably get to like because I, I can keep going on and on but we should yeah. like what does the why evangelism doesn't work or like yeah. you know the why we don't love why we don't love each other i think one one of one of my biggest laments right now one of the sadnesses that i feel is that a lot of Seventh-day Adventists look at the, the, the racial conflict in, in this country and, and the world over, they look at it through the lens of their favorite pundit or through their favorite yep. political party as opposed to the prophetic lens, right? Like we've been given enough prophetic material through the scripture and through the writings of Ellen White uh, and by by extension, you know, I'm not saying I agree a, th a thousand percent with every, but like with the pioneers, like they they wrote about this. Like we've been given enough fodder to to to, to for us to to be able to work out our position in this. But we, you know, you you get on social media, you get on a lot of different things, and you hear talking points that sound drastically similar to yes on either end, like who, your favorite MSNBC pundit to your favorite. Fox News pundit or whatever, and and it's a shame because Seventh Day Adventists were given material. We've been given stuff to formulate a a, a a more divine perspective that I think the world needs in this moment. So I said all that to say I think the world right now is in desperate need of the prophetic perspective, but because we're so busy like ch chasing, <laughs> the world is dying. Did you ever hear hear what Malcolm X said about Seventh Day Adventists when his mom took him to like a? Camp? I did, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Brother, you know, you know what's so interesting to me? It's so interesting to me. We as Seventh Day Adventists are not looking to win everyone. We're looking for people who are wistfully looking towards heaven, people who the Holy Spirit is bringing to repentance. And I, okay. I think we forget this. We're not looking for, you know, people to intellectually ascend that we're right and we're reasonable and we're decent. We're not looking yeah. for that. We're looking to. We're looking to administer the power of God so that people's lives are radically changed and they become kingdom citizens so that they yeah. can transition from this world to the next. We're preaching the three angels' messages. We're preaching to follow the Lamb wherever he goes and yeah. to, like the Israelites of old, go through the, the, the Canaanite lands and conquer every challenge that, God, that, that, can be, that Satan throws in, in front of right. us. We're not trying to just win everyone and be popular and well-accepted because this world's coming to an end 
and we yeah. need to save who we can save before yeah. it comes to an end. Like that's what we're trying to do here. And I think like that, that's so scary to Adventists today because we're scared. Like you said before the podcast of being different and we went through the whole 1950s and the cult accusations. And now we yeah. we've received a level of like, uh, I don't know what you call it, like credibility with other Christian churches because we're not a cult now. And we like this kind of standing of not being weird and awkward. But for those of you guys who, who are listening and, and you remember, cause you read the quote, JD. So Malcolm X was kind of the, uh, I don't want to say he's the alter ego of Martin Luther King Jr. But he, he was kind of like someone who was a voice for black America during the civil rights movement, but his positions were different than Martin Luther King. He didn't yeah. take the, uh, nonviolent resistance path. He basically felt eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That makes sense. And uh, he kind of did what the first century Jews were doing in their in their in their relationship to the law of Moses. They were basically saying, "These Romans are oppressing us. Let's kill them." Yeah, that was that was Malcolm X. He was Simon yeah, yeah. the Zealot. You know, he was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was Simon right. the Zealot. He was, yeah, he was, yeah. Let's fight back. Yeah. Um, and but anybody who listens to what he has to say begins to understand he's a he's a really intelligent human being and you know I have tons of things he says that i would say well that's that's not right i don't agree i think that's that's demonstrably false or whatever but he said a lot of true things and he was a really smart guy mm-hmm. and so he he recounts how he was uh, his mom takes him to an Adventist, like, I don't know if it was a prophecy seminar or a camp meeting or maybe a yeah. both. I think it was a camp meeting, but yeah, it might have been, it might have been both. Back in those days, everything was a prophecy right, seminar. Right, that's right. <laughs> and he talked about how he had never in his life met as nice of white people as he met there. Yeah. yeah. And the way they treated him and the way they treated his mom. And, and I find that to be right along with what you're saying, like right yeah. in connection with what you're yeah. saying. These were people who just detach themselves from the the ways that people around them political parties and others were framing issues yeah and they just framed their reality out of what god said and and this is going to provide an approach that works because like i I listen to people on the right and the left like not a lot but because i want to be a good dad and i don't want to be on social media too much and i know i'm you know people want me to speak up on every issue and i can't speak up on every issue because my name is not the Lord Jesus Christ and Mm, mm, mm. I'm not the shepherd of the flock, but he is. And you know, anyways, whatever, you know how it goes. Like you have kids and you have a wife and and you have a life and you don't want to be unfaithful to that because you're fighting every, every issue in the world. But I've listened to a lot of the things that the right has to say on what's happening in America. I've listened to what the left is saying. And I think one of the challenges with Adventism is we don't realize that you can take truth and you can carve it up in lots of different ways and you can apply it in lots of different ways. And when I listen to some things that people are saying about race on the right, I think, well, that makes a lot of sense. I've been listening to a lot of black conservatives lately. Cause I'm, I'm thinking like, what do black conservatives think? Yeah. So the whole like Larry elders of the world, uh, um, uh, what's his name? He's a, he's an elder academic, uh, an older academic, uh, not Thomas soul, Thomas soul. Oh, okay. So listen to like things that, that, that these guys have had to say and i think well they make a lot they have they have very good points uh, you don't have to go very far to listen to the to hear the left side of things it's pretty much dominating the airwaves um and i'll think well that's a really good point like that makes sense and mm-hmm. it, and so then i i think that as adventists 
when when we get co-opted into either of those sides i think i think it's perfectly fine to learn from the right and to learn from the mm -hmm. left i really do i think it's i think there's smart people on both sides mm -hmm. but i think we've got to understand that their kingdom is of this world and so mingled in with positions is always going to be the ambition for power and control on earth and, the, right. and to dominate a narrative for the sake of political control yeah I, I think we're sometimes very naive when we listen to the voices around us because we'll listen to say a right-wing commenter and go well that makes so much sense and yeah i get that and you kind of you feel that ring of truth and and the dots connect and you see that narrative as being like valid and you're like yeah right on or you listen to someone on the left and you're like dude right on i see the chain of oppression and and i see how we should tear down the man yeah yeah <laughs> you kind of get swept into that yeah and i feel like when we do that, this is just my, my feeling, like as a church family, when we do that, we're just being manipulated and used. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that there's not truth on both sides. I'm just saying right. that what we can do is we can learn from listening and then filter everything through scripture and then base our actions upon what the word of God says. Yeah. Because yeah, you, no, I, me you can do nothing. You know, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Like, the Bible is very clear. The word of God is our authority. It's our guide. It's like our power. It's everything. And so we should take scripture and the prophetic record and the prophetic voice and say, okay, this is our position. This is how we'll function. And this is how we'll relate. And this is what, def I, I, we keep getting back to this point. And I think it's because it's like the best possible point to get back to. And I think that everyone's getting away from this. Like, like Dave Ashrick, I was talking to him the other day and he talked to me about how he's getting a lot of heat right now because he's just saying very obviously true things like, like, Hey, if you're going to go protest, make sure that the sin in your heart is dealt with too. Like he's saying that, you know, so he's just saying what Jesus said, like, make sure you don't have a big beam in your eye, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're going to fix the system, but your life is yeah, in yeah. disarray and the sin that God hates is in you too. And the mm -hmm. human heart is the source of all the evil. So are you dealing with mm -hmm. He's saying these obviously true things and he's getting thrashed by people. Wow. And he says that it's very painful for him and that, for me too, to see everyone getting absorbed into the politics of it all. And I'm not in, and I don't want to like make people feel, I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying it's wrong for me or for you or for anybody else to learn from political. This is what, I don't know. Yeah, no, no. This is what I would say to that. I think, I think, cause well, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking about, um, you know, Jesus and, and Pilate's, judgment hall right yeah so Pilate, you know it's like jesus and i think this is what paul is talking about is the good confession it's in one of the letters to timothy it's it's in first timothy 6 i think when he talks about jesus gave the good confession and i think when he looks at Pilate, he says look my kingdom is not of this world or else my service will fight you know it, it, it's interesting that like at that moment there's a or not like in in close connection to that moment there's a voice clamoring for Barabbas. Now, what's the difference between Barabbas and Jesus there? I think the difference is that Barabbas is like, my kingdom is this world, and I'm here to give y'all this. I'm, I am here, trust, follow me, and I'll give, you, I'll give it back to you, right? Where Jesus is saying, this is not, this is not mine, and, I, and, and, and uh, this is like, his is that kingdom that Daniel saw, it, the stone cut out without hands. Yeah. And, and, what, and so how, let me apply that distinction here. I think we need to fight what, what, what I, what I am fighting for when I fight for this is for people. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I am not deceived into that. There's no political because the, 
any any political figure who stands up right now, it's politically advantageous right now to yeah. say Black Lives Matter. Totally. It is politically advantageous. Mm -hmm. So if they stand up and say it, now they could mean it, but like let's see, let's see, like if the if, if one means it, like time will bear that out, right? Everybody is saying it. Uh, like all corporations, every you get emails from everybody, like because because many of these corporations are looking at the bottom dollar, and it is economically and politically advantageous to say Black Lives Matter. When you were a pariah, when you said it three years ago, right? Like that, you it was a problem. Now, the, this is the point. I think that is reflective of of an attempt to carve out space here. When, when people are looking at, like, are they going to lose ground in the here and now, then you do what you have to do in any political moment to stay where you think the wave is taking you, oh, right? right. Yeah. Jesus wasn't like that. Like, Jesus was not trying to catch a wave, ever. In three and a half years, he didn't try to catch a wave. Mm -hmm. He did things that were outside of wave catching. Sending the allowing the rich young ruler to walk away that that doesn't make any sense like that guy has a lot of money Like what's wrong with you? Like his his disciples often questioned him on that I yeah. think that we don't fight for people anymore. We don't care about the hearts of individuals We care about our reputation. We care about where our standing and so you'll find a large portion of Adventists right now moving into protesting and uh, but like like I so I and I know David so like the question of where your heart is, is a legitimate question to ask. Yeah. Because when Peter, look, man, when Peter took his sword out to cut off ears, well, he wasn't aiming for an ear, but when he cut off that ear, he was defending Jesus in action, right? Yeah. But what did Jesus say to him? Put it away. Like, stop, like, stop. Like, that's not what we're here for, man. If you live by that, you're going to die by that. But that seems counterintuitive. Like, Jesus, he's defending you. Like, why wouldn't you, like, champion that? Because he wasn't really defending Jesus, right? Yeah. He wasn't defending his kingdom. He was defending P Peter. Was That was self-interest. That was self-preservation. And we know it because in a few hours, that same Peter will be denying Jesus. Mm -hmm. The same Peter who cut off ears just out, like, just a short time before is going to deny Jesus. So I would, I would, I, I, you know, I, I don't know the full substance of what David's saying, but like, if, if I understand what he's saying, I get behind that. I don't trust every Black Lives Matter chant right now because you it's it's convenient to do it, right? Yeah. Like, it's convenient. And oh. I just think we got to move out of convenience as a church. In America right now, so Donald Trump and his presidency is trying to be the law and order guy. So his, he's framing the situation as, there are radical left-leaning forces in America, and they're utilize, they're capitalizing on on the death of George Floyd. They're standing yeah. on his grave, and they're using this for their political agenda. They're violent. They're anarchical. They're anarchical, and they're crazy. The other side is basically like, you know, the right side of the aisle is 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 horribly racist and horribly evil, and um, that's kind of the narrative. And and yeah, so you've got it's, to me, it's just so crazy both sides are kind of right in the sense that there is an anarch like kind of i've been to the pacific northwest man i spent time in seattle I've, I've, okay. I've lived in portland for a while there's a bunch of looney tunes up there like a ton of them who just are you know just i don't know how to say it. it's just very fashionable and it's very trendy to be against the system yeah. but if you were to question people specifically about what's the system and what 
what, what practical solutions do you have to this? And, and why is this unjust? You're not going to get a lot of like intelligent responses and feedback. You know, there's just a, yeah. a disposition of the Pacific Northwest and there's a certain trend and style. And, and I'm not trying to paint them all with the same brush if you live in the Pacific Northwest, but what you see in Seattle, like the whole takeover of the, you know, portion of downtown Seattle and all of this stuff to a great extent, it is true. This is the spirit of the French revolution. You know, it's, it's that kind of just cast off all restraint, cast off all authority. Okay. So the right is kind of true that that spirit is there. Like that spirit is always there. And as we see the moral decline of the nation, that spirit is going to be more there. And so that spirit will, will latch itself onto the injustices that have transpired around us and then use those injustices to advance itself. So the right is correct about that. Like to, there is that spirit of anarchy, that spirit of that satanic spirit of the French revolution where it's like a overreaction against papal craziness. But at the same time, it is true that there is rank racism and rank injustice in the United States on multiple levels for multiple yeah. reasons. It's just the nature of humanity. And you can't, you can't believe if you're a biblical Christian that you can have 350 million people, most of whom are not converted and not have injustice. Okay, you, right. <laughs> it doesn't follow. Like if the Bible's true and the human heart is corrupt and, and it's, more evil than anything. Like if that's true, the heart is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked. Yeah. That's true. And you have millions and hundreds of millions of unsubdued hearts. Well, there's going to be oppression. There's going to be uh, disparity. There's going to be, yeah. Okay. So it, there, there's truth coming from the left that there's a need for national repentance and there's a need for reconciliation. hundred percent. Yeah. But I feel like it's our inability to see the layers and streams of truth, Right in various sides and in various positions that our inability to do that is why we can't come together and as a church because some people in our church are listening to certain political figures and other people in our church are listening to other political figures and they're kind of in their minds just sanctifying those people as like the proliferators of the truth as if they're just saying all that's true yeah and in our church we must i think be able to say we, we should we should just like 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 I was saying to you before this discussion, so I'm a passionate pro-life advocate, but I'm very careful not to get strapped into the Republican Party platform. Like, cause I, I don't support everything the Republicans believe in yeah. and do. And I wanna be very critical of, of Donald Trump when he does something crazy and wrong and insane. And I don't wanna be like obligated to support this group because I think that they have more, better social beliefs and views, like whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, because their aim is not like the righteousness of Christ and the conversion of souls and the preparation of a world for Jesus' second coming. Their, their goal is being in power. Like, you know what I'm trying to say? So like I the do it. matter thing, I'm just so a bit frustrated over here from Australia. I've said a lot here, man. I'm, I kind of have mixed emotions about saying so much just now, but uh, sitting over here from, uh, from Australia, looking at the United States, I heard, I, I heard this on a, on a podcast where this guy said that black lives matter is a semantically overloaded term, which means there's so much meaning packed into the word that you don't really know what you're agreeing with or disagreeing with when it's said. Okay. So on an essential level, if you just take the term for what it stands for, I don't think that there are many Adventists who, or even people who would deny black lives matter. In the course of the United States history, black American lives have not mattered to the extent that other lives have mattered. So everyone should be able to say amen to that. But there are attachments to the term 
and there's attachments to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I guess you'd agree with this, that are have nothing to do with race, but that just have to do with political persuasion or political ideology. Like, so a, a, a certain ideology of government, like this is my view of how government should be run. Um, there is that element there. And I think that a lot of people can kind of sense that. Uh, so, I, 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 so, okay. My, so with the, <laughs> with the Black Lives Matter thing, man, I wish that the world that you just described was true about the church. Sadly, I must report that there are many Adventists who have a problem with admitting even that. Now, okay, it's that, admitting now what? I, admitting your what? point, huh? Admitting what? What part? That 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 just the bare minimum Black lives have not been. They okay. I, I I was talking. I was because I've been talking to several people since this thing. You know, because because of the work, the the area of interest of where I work and. Like people will reach out, like, you know, what do you think about this? And so I've been on the phone with a lot of different people. And there are people who, and, and there are Adventists who the narrative, uh, they will not allow for the narrative that there has been, uh, they, they will admit that slavery was bad. And these, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the conversation. I would never say names. I would never do anything yeah, like that. Yeah. But like the, the, they will admit that slavery was a bad thing, but that along, around the emancipation, it started to even out and by 64 we're even like black americans had ascended to equality with white americans and uh we, we've been holding hands you know skipping along since 64 and i say 64 because that's a civil rights act right yeah, yeah. but so you it, i i think if we could get to the place where we could just say amen to that right and and not because it, it's interesting that let me use the abortion uh, as a as a the, the abortion movement, um, anti-abortion movement, yeah. Um, as as a as a counter as an analogy. Yeah. So you 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 have anti-abortion activists who will blow up a clinic right now. They will do it. They will doctor inside. They don't care. They'll do it, right? You have a lot of Christians, a lot of Adventists who who they're not fearful of being anti-abortion because of those people they just will go you know what that's them i don't really ascribe to that this is where i'm at with it right they, they they're not afraid it's but you have some who will do that they'll they'll do that with black lives matter they'd be like man you got these wackos out here far far so we can't really get it and the all lives matter like you know it's it, it's all lives matter and, and, and all this other stuff so there's this pushback because and i think in the hearts of many they have a struggle with admitting and they got to do soul searching that black lives have not been valued in, in this country with the same rapport historically and in you know on you know so so say you mark equality in 1964 you say look we we reached equality well king gets killed in 69 malcolm x gets killed shortly after that and they were killed for this fight that they were fighting megar Everest gets killed right so like in in the 60s we didn't we didn't achieve the kind of equality that I think uh, we we want to believe that we did. So I say all that to say, yeah. on its uh, the, the the term, yes, it comes loaded and loaded with things. With as a Christian, where maybe you have to, uh, you got to get off the train eventually. Yeah. But the sentiment is is not a problem, and I think, and you know, some some don't like this indictment, but I think if we and the, the Adventist church and the Christian church at large, if we did our work, I don't think it, uh, the, our work leading up to 2012 when Black Lives Matter hit the scene, 
then it would be, there would have been there wouldn't have been an environment that would have necessitated that call. I think that call came because Black Lives Weren't Mattered. It was a response to George Zimmerman being acquitted. That's why Black Lives Matter even hit the thing. And then it came into prominence in 2014 after the Michael Brown uh, killing. And, and I think we, we yeah. many Adventists I, that I've been in conversation with have explained, the, have given me reasons why they think Trayvon died or why if he would have done X differently, he wouldn't have died. And if Michael Brown would have just did a little bit differently, he wouldn't have died. And that to me suggests that like they struggle with that sentiment. I could be wrong though. And I, I get what you're saying. You, that I think that to some degree, this is, this is something I think that needs to be settled in every single person's mind, black person, white person, in America, in the, in the Western world, and in particular in the Adventist church. There, we need to be able to distinguish between the general lack of concern that people have for those that they don't know mm-hmm. and for those that aren't their family, which is just kind of, prof, we proffer that on everyone. So we have a hierarchy of love and concern, right? Okay kids are first or you know spouses are first you know our extended family is second you know our community and friends are third and it's just kind of this this wave of yeah of concern like and it it decreases as it gets further away from us the the more separated others are from us whether they're our same color or not we're just less concerned for them i think that's just human nature it's just reality and i think that it manifests itself in every culture at every time so that minorities are always going to be less less um, valued and less appreciated than majority populations. I, I don't think, I, I don't know if we could ever find a society or civilization that didn't undervalue minority populations just simply because that's how people function. They care okay. more about those who they care about. And, and so like I can, so I can hear a terrible story of a guy in Western Sydney who dies. He can be white. His name can be Matt. His wife's name can be Sharice. He can have three boys. And I can go, oh, that's, that's, that's terrible. I'm sorry that that home invader killed him and his oldest son. Wow, that's terrible, you know, well. But there's only so much emotion I can feel for that because I'm so far removed from that person. I don't know them. It's just a story to me. Like, okay. I, I don't feel any more emotion than I would feel seeing a movie and somebody getting killed. And that's fake. That didn't really happen. So I think there's that just natural human instinct to just care about what you care about, to care about who's with you, who you know. Uh, and that crosses culture and that crosses race. So I saw that as a kid, I had friends because I lived in a community that was mixed raced and um, the whites were not the majority in, in, the, in the school that I went to. Maybe they were, but it would be kind of like a very small majority. And I don't know about that. Yeah, like pure white kids were the minority, but you know, white, Hispanic, there's lots wow. of the kids like that. But you could have close friends of a different race and you just care about them and you don't care, you know, some kid, he's your own color or whatever. He's out there. Yeah, whatever. Because it's just not your friend. I think there's that. And then there's just the, the history of, of racial prejudice. And okay. I, I don't know how to say that. I think I see it as like three different things happening at once. One's just the natural selfishness of people where they can only care about those who they know. Okay. I think then there's secondly, just this, so this ability to associate with those who are like you and who you see as like you. And then there's like racial prejudice, like intended racial prejudice, where a person is harboring a sense of superiority over another human being based on race. Okay. And, you know, and then there's just normal cultural differences, you know, and I think that 
the reason why the race discussion in America is never going to reach a satisfactory like position or in any country is because no one wants to have a really, really complicated discussion about a lot of different things that all converge together to make our relationships what they are, if you understand what I'm saying. So it's, it's, it's such a convoluted and confused situation. And to me, I just find that the answer is conversion. Well, okay. So, I mean, I, so, so go, what, what I find again, yeah, yeah, no, I was about to say like to, to, I was going to pin. So I, I think that it, it's interesting, right? So I think that the, this, this American, you know, I, I heard this philosopher's name, Eddie Glaude Jr. He was just saying, I, he said that he doesn't think America is unique in its sins. No. And I agree with that. He says where it may get unique is in its refusal to acknowledge and that just comes with time right like its inability to admit to its like that this is where it went wrong in this specific way like in 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 this so you have you have people who who want to explain away like they just want to like explain it away and because i think the conversation would move light years but that you know what i might be asking too much let me just make the point yeah. that i was gonna make instead like when I when I look at the life of Jesus, right, and um, you know Ellen White talks about this this stay in Samaria that Jesus had, where he stayed in Samaria for two or three days or something like that. This I think this was after he talked to the woman at the well, and she just you know they they the town asked him to stay, and and she talks about the struggle that the disciples had over that course of time, mm -hmm. because um, she said they played polite for the sake of Jesus. But she said they would have felt they felt like it was a, it was a, bet, a betrayal to their national like their sense of national pride to like really like oh. be like Jesus in this spot right where breaking bread I like I picture Jesus laughing with them and like you know oh, yeah, yeah. you know and just really like embracing and his disciples looking like man we don't so do nice. that we don't do that and 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 um so she she marks that as an important moment for them that Jesus was trying to train them but what was he trying to teach them another moment where uh, it's a similar lesson is his his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman when he goes and she says that Jesus in Desire of Ages she says that Jesus gets on the boat he goes and he interacts with the Syrophoenician woman and then leaves because his only task was to interact with her because he was trying to show the disciples something and what he was trying to show them was that she was a child of God. She was a daughter of Abraham. All these Samaritans are children of God, despite where their, their background, despite their cultural manifestation, they are children of Abraham. So I will grant you that division, right? That there's like the bone, just the, you know, for this, like we're talking. So there's the, the just the explicit the Ku Klux Klan member, right? That just, just, he is a white supremacist. Then you have the person who's just like, they can't see, they can't see in the, they, they are, they're prone to, to give love to those that look like them. And then you have the, you have that, that other group. It's that middle group that I find very interesting because I think what conversion does is it transforms your lens to where you see me, like you are like me, Matt. Like I don't, I see, I don't look at you and your white skin then separates you as some entity apart from me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I don't like, right? Like, I, I, and, and you have your, you have culture. Right? I remember when I was at Arise and you had invited me over and you made me that food. And there was, there were, there were cultural elements to that food. There were Cuban elements to that, that dish, right? Yeah. Like the, so you, you, you are, you're different in that, but the, where, where I think, what I think the gospel does is it destroys the barrier as me seeing you as like me. I see in your face, mine reflected. I see in Leah's face, mine reflected. I, it does like the skin doesn't function as a barrier anymore. The ethnic articulation doesn't function as a barrier anymore. Um, and uh, so, let, <laughs> and I love this. What I'll, an example to me is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Where Jesus is trying to articulate to us what the law looks like in action. And I was reading in a commentary one day and they brought this out. When the, the person that was um, beat up were yeah. told that they were stripped naked and they were half dead. That means they cannot talk, right? So there's no way to pick up on their accent or any of the nuance that would give them away. And they're stripped naked. So any of their clothing, you there's no way to identify who this person is. You don't know who they are from oh, Adam. This is so good. This is such so, a good so the so the 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 priest goes by the levite goes by and the samaritan stops the samaritan does not get caught up in any question of who this person is yes. what if they're not like me they could be jewish they could be samaritan they could be whatever but they but because they were in trouble the samaritan yeah. helped them and jesus says jesus says at the end of that this is what the law looks like so i'll 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 bring the point to a close when it says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. They are going to look like the Samaritan where there isn't a question of who they are. I, because you have a lot of people who will look at the George Floyd video and they'll go, well, what if, but he wouldn't, what if he was this and he might've been this and he had a record and he had all of those questions are moot. When, when the, the law doesn't ask that, the law in action, in the person of Jesus, would not stop to ask any of those questions. It would ask, is this person in need of help? And the law demands that I help them. That is justice. And I think that is what God is trying to pull us to. Wow. And we allow race to bring these barriers where, well, I, that, this person needs to qualify themselves before I will help them. And once I know they're like me, then I will help them. And that's a violation of the commandments of God, yeah. I believe. Man, that's so, you know, before you said, said what you said about the Good Samaritan, and we'll just wrap up on, on this kind of last thought. Next week, bro, when we get together, we okay. need to, I want, what I want to do is I want to center our whole conversation on, like, arguments. Like, say, okay, here's an argument people are making in regards to race. What do you and I think about that? Okay, okay, all right. I think that would be oh, really yeah. good. Yeah, no, it's good. That's good. You take, like, certain – so I've listened to uh, – uh, Ty Gibson's been saying a lot. Uh, on race and different relationships and he's been he's been just really just packaging arguments he's reading in books yeah, okay. he's a lot of books on race and history in, in america so what are certain arguments that we've heard either side saying about race and about culture and about the history of black america and the history of white america and let's see what we think of the arguments okay All right. before you started talking about the good samaritan i was thinking about how when you really see yourself and the rest of humanity as fallen before God, as depraved before God, there, there is an equality that can, that can be found in that. Yeah, yeah. Because what you see in yourself is complete and utter fallen sinfulness. 
That's what you see. You see that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. When you embrace that and accept that, anybody who comes to you and says, yeah, you know, there's a history of racism in America. You're like, yeah, of course. If somebody comes to you, you know, like if you're a white person and you, you're proud of America and you love your yeah. country, and if you're a black person and you're proud of America and you love yeah. it, and somebody says, yeah, America has this horrible sin of racism and, and, and oppression of black people. You just go, yeah, of course, yeah, true. Because how do you see yourself? Yeah. Like in me, that is to say, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Yeah. In my tongue, there's just like poison like a snake. Like, and even in my best attempts, it's like the filthy, rotten blood that comes from a menstruating woman. Like, okay, like, yeah, that's me. And we can embrace that and accept that. And you really yeah. believe that. It's not just platitude. It's not just, yeah, I'm going to pretend to be humble by talking about how sinful I am. No, no, no. When you understand your depravity and it terrifies you. Yes. It terrifies you. You see the animal, the monster, the tyrant. You see the genocide ear inside of yourself. You see yeah. all that stuff. And, and like it never becomes hard then to hear someone else make a criticism about the human race. Um, and further to that, and then you see that, that sinfulness in others, and it doesn't, it doesn't make you give them a pass or justify their behavior, but it makes sense out of their behavior. Yeah, because yeah. what else would you expect from a sinful black person, white person, brown person, yellow person? Right. We're just fallen. And that there brings kind of a unity in that because it's like you're starting from the same premise that everyone's fallen. And it's easy to end up in the right, in the same, right place if you begin in the right place. And so like this whole story of the Good Samaritan, you've got a man who is unidentifiable because of the condition that he's in. So you don't see the Samaritan as much as you just see the hurt man. So if I'm interacting with people of other races or cultures, I'm not just, I'm not dealing with that culture or race. I'm dealing with a hurt person. And what hurts us most is sin. And Jesus says, you think that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. So if we could see everyone as poor, miserable, blind, and naked, it makes us, and we can see ourselves that way. Number one, it helps us to take criticism better. And number yeah. two, it helps us to see through the errors of others, irrespective of race and culture and go, yeah, we're all, they're sinners. How else would they act? And then we can work from that place to get to a better place. Yeah. But if we start with a very pretentious kind of self-righteous attitude where, you know, on the, on the, on the one side or the other, whether it's the brown side and the yellow side, you know, and, and race relationships aren't as simple as black and white in America or anywhere else. They're black and, and lighter black. They're brown and yellow and they're brown and another shade of brown. And then there's brown from this country and brown, you know, it's just like so human, you know? Um, and if, but if every side could start with the basic premise that we're all really screwed up and the history of the world, you don't even need to be religious for this. Like the history of the world, there's a, there's a conservative argument that I heard from Thomas Sowell in regards to race. And he talks about the universality of race, of, of slavery and how people who are the least Eurocentric in their view of the world are the most Eurocentric when it comes to slavery. And he basically talks about just the universal evil of it. And when you listen to him talk, and I've done a lot of checking up on his references in this particular chapter of this book I read, and he just talks about the universal evil of mankind. And I'm just like, yeah, that's right. History testifies of what the scripture says. And every time like this horrible event happens, like, so the genocide in Rwanda and whenever, you know, the death fields of Cambodia and 
the Serbs and the Croats, you're like impaling each other in the 1990s. And everyone's like, how did this happen? Oh, and everyone like plays stupid. Like everybody plays dumb. Well, you know, that's yeah. what happens because that's what's in the human heart. And that's what Jesus was talking about. Um, when he said that, you know, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, that your brother without a cause, you're a murderer already. And it's out of the heart that proceeds murder and theft and right. adultery. It's like he wasn't just speaking like fancy speech. He was right. what he was saying. And you give people the right circumstances and, and the opportunity to do so, they'll practice all kinds of really horrible stuff. And the Bible just says it, like your heart is deceitful above all things and you're desperately wicked. And uh, so, I th- my, so I guess my basic point here to summarize everything I'm saying is, is that human beings, if, we can, if, if Christ following believers realize to the full extent their fallenness and the fallenness of everyone around them. And if we could all kind of see that we're, we're on, I think a good, good foundation. We're on, we're on good footing to make progress. I think we're, we're right. in a place we're positioned correctly to make progress in the issues of race and culture and, and what divides us. But if we come at the com- conversation as, as like with any level of self-righteousness, I think that will, cl- that clouds the conversation because it, it oversimplifies things and it just makes a good and a bad side. And whenever you get in like, this is the good side, this is the, there is a good and bad side when it comes to slavery in America. That's a, the bad side is the slave owners and the good side is the right, slave. Right. Just that simple. And, right. and we should all accept that fact in certain situations, a hundred percent. But when we're talking about how we become one, I think that's where, that's where that Heather has to be that universal acceptance of the fallenness of man. Because if you follow, if you follow, if you follow history back far enough, everyone has a grievance, right? Everybody has grievance. So the, the Slavs from Poland, they're enslaved by the Germans how many times, right? Like right. the Barbary slave trade in North Africa that enslaved white Europeans, that goes back to, so, so right now in Ireland, there are people who descended from slaves that were enslaved in North Africa by the Ottoman Empire, you know, whatever. So everyone can trace their lineage back to a point in time where they are, their people have been impressed. They've been killed. They've been, whatever. They've been enslaved. Somebody has at some point. So, if you can just accept on a on a basic premise the fallenness of humanity, it makes it easier for you as a white American or just the American government or the American people to say to hear the black community say this is an evil that has been done to us and it's been perpetrated over over a hundred over hundreds of years right. in the Americas. And yes, there was the same evil elsewhere too. Sure, but there was this evil here. And right. so when we cite this evil, we're not trying to say that you're exceptionally bad. We're just trying to say that the horrible nature of humanity manifested itself here in this particular way. It was expressed let's here. Yeah, and let's right. deal with it. Right. So it's not, a, it's not a particular insult to whites to say this is an evil that manifested here and we need to deal with it. Yeah. It's just a reflection on the fact that human beings are really bad. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, and, and to deny it, to deny it, 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 it and it's often denied or just the accountability, right? So uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel has this quote where he says, few are guilty, but all are responsible. And so it's about taking like responsibility for and, and introspection of whether or not one is complicit in it or not. And, and, and the immediate defensiveness is, and I say this with all due respect, but the immediate defensiveness is pharisaical. That's what it is. Like I, I, I can't, I'm trying to do my best not to get roped in because I want to be seen as good. I want to be understood as good. The problem with Phariseeism, Jesus points out, and you know, you know, in that parable, the the Pharisee and the publican, he says that 
self-righteousness has a two-tier problem. Like it deceives the, the self-righteous, but it also causes them to despise like others, right? So I think that racism is a, is, it's, a, it's a particular manifestation of Phariseeism. That's what it is. Like, I don't want to face my own faults. I don't want to look into the law of liberty. So I, you must be bad. And it's easy, it's easy to collect a group that I'll just deem bad because they all look the same and that will alleviate the pressure on me. It's just self-righteousness, man. And what the gospel is demanding is an admission that, like you said, I'm a part of that messy story of humanity. And you are too, and you are too, and you are too. So that now let's like deal with the messiness. Yes. But the avoidance, like I think racism is one way to try to avoid dealing with the messiness. Wow. And so it, it, huh. it puts it on the other. Yes. Like y'all are the problem, not yeah. me. That's so good. I think that white America and its resistance, no, white America is not a monolith. And, and right. the 50% of white America is, is not conservative politically or socially. And would deem itself very enlightened, you know, very progressive. Mm -hmm. But if you were to just ad address those people who are sensitive against, they're, they're, they're kind of programmed against the term Black Lives Matter, which I'm not. I, I've become, in some, some conversations I've had with people, I've unintentionally become the apologist for those who are against Black Lives Matter. Right. But I'm not against the. Every time I hear somebody say Black Lives Matter, I just go, yeah, amen. Cool. I, I don't need to, I personally, on a personal level, I don't need, yeah. I don't sense the need to say all lives matter. I understand where people are coming from when they say all lives matter, because they're not trying to say black lives don't matter. They're just trying to say, I don't agree with the political platform of the BLM movement. And I see that I don't want to be, you know, whatever there's, mm. so I've gotten kind of in a conversation with Dave Sherwood, who's a friend of ours. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Right. <laughs> like he, he said some things where I've, I've, I've addressed him pr privately off of social media and just said, and I said, look, and the first thing I said is I'm, I'm going to look like an apologist here for something I don't say. But there's a, there's a part of your communication that I don't think you understand the opposition here. And I think I do understand your opposition on this topic. But I think white America can be sometimes hesitant to, just like anybody, it's human nature. You're hesitant to acknowledge something when you feel the person who's pointing that thing out is themselves communicate they're, they're, they're themselves being condescending and pharisaical so okay. nobody likes to feel like the bad guy okay so when, a, when a, another side of a discussion says to you hey this was bad this was evil and you interpret that as them saying you're uniquely bad you're uniquely evil well the first thing you're going to say is well only 10 percent of uh, white people alive today descended from slave owners only 10 percent of white america owns slaves what are you talking that has nothing to do with me well, why would they say that? That 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 may be factually correct. I'm not sure. I've never checked it out, but right. it sounds relatively reasonable because I understand the nature of slavery, how it was more of a corporate reality than it was an individual citizen reality. And if you're right. a poor white person, you don't own slaves. You're a poor white person. If you're right. a wealthy plantation owner, which was basically you're a corporate CEO, you own slaves, you know? So right. uh, I, I could see the, the logic that that might be true, but why would that be the response, the immediate response of someone? Right. They're feeling like they're being personally attacked. Okay. They're being personally condemned when they don't feel that that's a justified cost. Now, so they're going to act like a Pharisee and they're not going to see the possible, their possible, I don't know the word, complicitness mm -hmm. in something that, that hurts another person. So they're going to become a Pharisee because, they, because someone else they feel is, is condemning them. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting, yeah. but 
Can you even get, anyways, man, I'm going to leave the last word with you. Say anything that comes to your mind because <laughs> this has been two hours, but we're doing like the Joe Rogan podcast thing. This oh is, yeah, no, man. I, yeah, I, this is I, good. Just, I just we're, keep going. We, well, we just need to say to everyone who's listening to us, this is just for you and I's sake anyways. Right. We're just selfish. <laughs> we just want to talk to each other. That's it. That's right. And we found an excuse. We found an excuse. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, no, I, I think, I think what you're saying, I, I, the one, the, the one, I think if I could encapsulate like one of the main points I was trying to make in this specific yes. conversation is I would say that we need to check individually what lens we're looking at this stuff through, right? I think that if we're going to be honest, man, about who Jesus was as a person and, and as, as representative of God, right? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have to ask ourselves, would Jesus say the kind of things that we say at any given moment? When we look at a thing, um, when we look at a certain scene, like would Jesus come down on the side of a murdered person? And, and like, you know, if you told Jesus, like, look, man, this happened around the corner, would he say, well, what was their record? Well, what were they like? Or like, what kind of, what neighborhood were they from? What, like, I just don't, I think we really have to ask ourselves what lens we're looking at all this through. Culture is so pervasive that it can seep into the mind with relative ease. Some of us make it easy and we open ourselves up to it completely, but it's not hard, right? And I think there's a cultural sentiment that pervades. And, and, and again, we already established no political party is, is uh, neither of us is endorsing any political party because I don't think they will save us. I don't think they have the answer. I don't think they get us home because home is the new Jerusalem, according to scripture. Yeah. Right. And, and Jesus is the king of the new Jerusalem. And so we have to start to ask ourselves, are we looking at the world through his lens? Are we looking at people like Jesus looked at them or are we allowing uh, or are we are we looking at them? How it's been suggested to us by some broader cultural sentiments on either yes. side. Yes. Right. And that is the way that is the way home. Like the new Jerusalem is not going to be liberal or conservative. It's not going to be Republican or Democrat. There will be no country's flag flying over the throne of God. We have to reset how we're looking at all of this, man. We have to. And we have to let the gospel be our lens. Yes. Um, so to go back to the beginning, right, the pioneers, the reason why I, I laud them and I uh, celebrate them is not because, you know, there were things they got wrong. We're growing in truth. But one thing I feel like I can say with confidence is that the lens that they were using was the prophetic lens. They wanted to know what the world read through the lens of scripture. And we have to get back there. We have to if we're going to do what we need to do for the world around us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. That was awesome. Thanks again for joining me. And guys. Yeah. Blessings and uh, may the Lord go with us all as we really try to become one as Jesus and the Father is one. And as we tr try to fulfill the words, and not even just try, as we fulfill in the faith of Jesus the words that he said, uh, that we will love each other as he has loved us. Yeah, amen. The whole world could know that we're his disciples. And so, amen. God bless you guys. See you, Jasper. All the best.